if you would open your Bibles to, again, to 2 Samuel. I would like to go back to Absalom one more time here. Um, there are some couple verses that I have left behind to get on to chapter 15. And I don't know if we will ever go back to them, but there was a lot there, too, um, that I had wanted to go to, but I wanted to go on to chapter 15, and I already think I have more notes than I have time tonight. But if you would, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14, and stand with me, if you would, for um, the reverence of the Lord's word. And I would like to start at verse 32 in chapter 14. 2 Samuel 14:32. And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if, it, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and, the, and told the king. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared his chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate, and it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man that hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all of Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You may be seated. We pray again, Lord. Oh, Lord, we need your word. Wash us with your word tonight. Help this vessel. Help me to teach, Lord, or preach. Whatever you would choose, Lord, as a broken vessel, Lord, as a dying man to dying men, Lord, do a work among us and help each one of us, Lord. May the truths of your word wash over us. May they go down deep into our spirit. Lord, rain upon us tonight. For Christ's name's sake, we pray. Amen. So my question tonight, um, as we have asked different questions as our title, is who is your Absalom? Who is your Absalom? Remember again, our 
actual text is in verse 6, and on this manner did Absalom to all of Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, if you do not think that you have an Absalom, don't look for one. You do not have to find Absalom. He will find you. But be assured of this, that as long as we are in this present evil world, there will be trials and troubles, tribulations, persecutions, and there may occasionally be an Absalom that we must deal with. First Thessalonians says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that you should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. Every trial, every affliction, every hardship is by appointment. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Knowing that our afflictions are appointed doesn't make them any easier. But there is a great comfort there for the believer. If these afflictions are appointed, then God is in control. He is sovereignly dispensing what he deems best for his people. So, in every affliction and trial, there is a silver lining. They are his messengers. And that promise extends to Absalom. Job 32, or 23, I'm sorry, 14 says, he, For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. He has some appointments for us. We would not appoint things the way that the Lord does. Who is your Absalom? Brethren, we have God's word and his Holy Spirit. Scripture warns us against deceivers, seducers, heresies, and offenses. And I could name more than that. But Jesus says in Matthew 18, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Pastor has well preached this verse, but this is a promise of Scripture. Write it down. Count on it. Offenses will come. And notice the language used to introduce that. For it must needs be that offenses come. Now, this takes Absalom to another level. It takes Absalom out of the, the realm of chance or of accidental circumstances and puts him in the realm of God's absolute sovereign purpose and design. There is no mistake when we find an Absalom in the midst of the church. For it must needs be that offenses come. This is a very serious warning. We're often surprised by Absalom. He surprises us. But God is not surprised. And because we live in a fallen and sinful world, offenses will come. Yea, they must come. 
brethren, this is unescapable. Christ does not save us to keep us in some protective bubble that somehow escapes the trials of this life and frees us from the threat of all harm and offenses. We live in a world of offenses, and many times they reach the church. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen says, For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. There's another powerful verse. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Paul delivers the word of God here to a divided church. There must be also heresies among you. Here again, we have that sovereign power and authority that oversees, protects, and sustains the church. Christ, who is the head of the church, his church, has determined and ordained that his church would suffer and be sanctified by the heresies and divisions of men. Now, let's be honest. Divisions and heresies confound us. They show us how weak we are and often how unholy we are. But Christ is never confused or confounded. There is a work that Christ is doing in and for his church. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be manifest among you. The word approved is a key word, I think, in this verse. It means to be proved, to be tried as metals are tried by fire and thus are purified. So here's the purpose. It's laid out before us. As bad and as harmful as heresies and divisions are, Christ has a purpose in it. And it is this, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. You don't put gold in the fire to destroy it. You don't hold gold back from the fire because you want to protect it. You put gold in the fire because it is precious to you. The fire doesn't destroy the gold. It refines and it purifies it. The fire separates the gold from the dross. Fire is divisive itself. As divisive as some men can be and as divisive as heresies are, Fire, the fire of God's word, is even more divisive. Fire drives out dross. Friends, this is never comfortable. Heresies and divisions are, are, are usually oppressive and vexing. But Christ will prove his people. He puts them in the fiery furnace to separate the dross from the gold. There are things that Christ will do for his church that won't be accomplished without heresies and divisions. There is an element of our sanctification that will not be made manifest without the church 
of Christ suffering under such heresies and divisions. You know, Christ was doing a work in Israel at this time. I believe that he was both chastening David and judging Israel. If David had been spiritually where he should have been, and if Israel had been spiritually, I don't know if I said she on David, but if, if David had been where he should have been spiritually, and if Israel had been spiritually where she should have been, there would not have been an Absalom crisis. But God, there's those words that we love around here, but God, even in the midst of chastening and judgment, is merciful to sanctify his people with an Absalom. We might say that in a sense, there is a work of sanctification that only an Absalom can provide. Who is your Absalom? Now, if you'll remember in our last time together, Absalom has not seen his father for five years. He has spent three years in Gesher, and now he's back in Jerusalem for two years, but he still has not seen his father's face. And Absalom is tired of waiting, and he calls on Joab. Joab doesn't come, so he calls a second time. He still doesn't come. Absalom sends his servants to set. Joab's to set Joab's fields on fire. Then we read in 2 Samuel 14, 31 and 32. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom and to his house and said unto him, Wherefore hath thy servant set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Gesher? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Absalom had a purpose and a plan. He would now send Joab to the king as his ambassador. And Absalom is not asking for Joab's help. He is expecting Joab's help and cooperation. He has already set his fields on fire. He means business. He will send Joab to the king, Absalom's father, with his words, his logic, and his reasoning. Then we read in 2 Samuel 14, 33. So Joab came to the king and told him, told him what? Just what? Absalom had told him to tell him. That's my guess, anyway. So all the arguments that he had given him. Um, so, let's see, I'm sorry. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, this was no doubt a very moving scene, and it had all the appearance of very tender affection, submission, and reconciliation. After five years of separation, David and Absalom finally meet again, father and son. 
David, who before gave Joab strict instructions that Absalom would not see his face and, and told him to send him to his own place, now calls for him. And when Absalom comes before the king, he bowed himself on his face to the ground. Absalom went all the way down, all the way down, face to the ground. It would appear that Absalom would hold nothing back in demonstrating his love, loyalty, and submission to David. And then the word says that David kissed Absalom. What more could you expect? What a scene this must have been. Everything would now indicate that their relationship was restored. But the next chapter will prove otherwise. 2 Samuel 15, 1. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. What's going on? This sure is not what we see or what appears to have happened in verse 33. What is Absalom doing? Absalom is beginning his revolt. He prepares for himself chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. This is a show of kingship. In fact, Samuel himself warned of this. Back in 1 Samuel 8, 10 and 11, and Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and they shall run before the chariots. Well, this is exactly what Absalom is doing. He is presenting himself to the people of Israel as their new upstart king. From that affectionate and solemn meeting with David, we move immediately and directly to this rebellion and revolt. One, one writer said this, if a spark of gratitude had burned in his breast, Absalom would now have sought to do all in his power toward forwarding the interest of his, of his indulgent father. But alas, so far from strengthening the hands of his royal parent, he sets to work to dethrone him. Absalom was now in a position to develop his vile plan of disposing David. What I think we see here is the coiling of a snake getting ready to strike. He is preparing. Another writer said this concerning Absalom. The methods he followed thoroughly revealed what a godless and unscrupulous scoundrel he was. The first thing recorded of him at once intimated his utter contempt of God and manifested his affinity with the heathen. So Absalom puts together a parade of men, horses, and chariots, all designed to demonstrate to wavering Israel a show of power and strength. You know, Absalom was a political genius. He really was. Ungodly one, but still a political genius. 
and he is on a campaign trail to get Israel's notice and approval. And think about this. This show of power and royalty is exactly what the people desired and expected in a king. They didn't want a weak king. They didn't want a king to even appear to be weak. That's why they, in their flesh, chose Saul to be their king. Our nation seems to relish in a show of weakness. But Israel wanted a strong king. And in all appearance, Adam, Absalom seemed to fit the bill and satisfy their carnal desires. So then we go on, 2 Samuel 15, 2. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate, and it was so that when any man had a controversy, came to the king for judgment. Then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. So Absalom is following hard on this campaign trail. He was a driven man, a purpose-driven man, driven by his own lust and thirst for power. You know, zeal's a good thing if it's according to knowledge. Absalom knows nothing of grace, nothing of godliness, nothing of godly zeal. Absalom was not about the truth. He was about popularity, and he had a winning attitude. He was a salesman. And he wasted no time in achieving his schemes. He rose up early, stood beside the way of the gate. Now, the gate of a city was a very important place in that time for both justice and judgment. Transactions were made there witnessed and confirmed I was going to, to draw out maybe a little bit more on that there's there's much that goes on at the gate and you can find that in scripture the gate was a place of judgment now remember this is all part of his plot to steal the hearts of the men of Israel all the diversity of the spokes on that will, his will, is leading to one thing, the throne of Israel. Absalom wants the crown. He wants to be king of Israel. It's really interesting to me that Absalom has chosen this location, the gate of the city. We are, as it were, watching in full color the manner by which Absalom stole Israel's heart. He went to the gate of the city. The gate was the entrance into the heart of the city. Control the gate and you have the city. To steal the hearts of the men of Israel, Absalom didn't have to canvas the city. He stood in the gate. No matter how we may personally feel about Absalom, he was brilliant. But he was also a liar and a thief. He stole that which was not legitimately his. And he may think that he is simply at war with his father, but really Absalom is at war with God. And he's at war with God's word. Our brother prayed this tonight. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The gate of the city was an important place. Justice and judgment were established in the gate. In Amos we read, Hate the evil, love the good, and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Proverbs 22 we read, Rob not the poor, because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate, for the Lord will please their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. And it's interesting to me, too, that as Jesus spoke of the church in Matthew 16, he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Absalom is rising up early, stand beside the way of the gate, and when a man comes who has a controversy, and he's coming to the king for judgment, Absalom goes to work. And he gets to the gate, and he's intervening, intermeddling, and intercepting those who are looking for judgment. So let me read verses 2 and 3 together for context. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man had a controversy, came to the king for judgment. Then Absalom uh, called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom is not only deceiving others, he himself is deceived. He is standing by the way of the gate and catching men in his net as they, as they go by. O oh, friend, of what city art thou? I think he's got this down to a science now, it seems. As though he already knows what the answer will be. Well, thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would reply, See, thy matters are good and right. Now, how many people do you have to say that to before that plan self-destructs? Eventually, one party or the other won't be satisfied. However, in Absalom's mind... You do not have to deliver the goods of your speech. Boy, this sounds so much like today. You don't have to keep your word. Your words and flattery without any action have already won the man void of understanding. You are the people's choice. Vote Absalom. See, thy matters are good and right. Absalom is simply telling the people what they want to hear. He is ready to pronounce judgment without hearing the whole matter. Just hearing one side of the matter was, was enough to get his approval and decision, but that's very dangerous. That's a sure way to come to a wrong conclusion. And scripture would teach us otherwise. Proverbs 18.13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. We all, we all have tasted that to some degree. We all know what that means. God deliver us from it. Who is your Absalom? Brethren, we need to pay attention to Absalom. 
we need a healthy respect for him. Not because he's doing what's right, but because of what he's getting by with or what it seems like he's getting by with. We need to respect him in the sense that we do not fall into his snare. He is wooing Israel, and they are listening to him and following him. And that is just so amazing to me. Absalom is amazing. Israel is infatuated with him. You look at him and you're thinking, why? Well, he, he's good looking for one thing. We know that scripture says that. It's amazing what he accomplishes and how he is doing this. He is getting so many to blindly follow him. Is anyone thinking? Does anyone have their radar on him? There doesn't seem to be anyone asking questions or examining him. Not even David. The blind are leading the blind straightway to the ditch. You know, I think that part of this is spiritual. This is spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual na nature to Absalom's rebellion and revolt. Now, we know that there's a lot of flesh. But I think there's a spiritual nature to this. And his crafty schemes to steal Israel's heart. Where there is much blindness and darkness, it's spiritual. The people have been blinded that they can't find the door. Blindness is the work of the devil. 2 Corinthians 4 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, for God who commandeth the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give us to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ is the light of this world. There is no greater light than that light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How were you saved? How are men saved? For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts. You need light to be saved. We need light and life. Those that sat in darkness have seen a great light. Amen. But that is not how we started out. There was a time when the gospel was hid from us. We were lost. We were in darkness. The gospel is light itself. But it was hid from us. And how was it hid? Didn't we hear the message of the gospel many times, and yet we were still blinded to it? But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, 
in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest they, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Darkness and blindness are the works of the devil. He hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. I went to Colorado one year. Back in my teens. And while we were there, a group of us, while we were there, they we went on a tour of a cave. And I don't remember the name of the cave, but they took us into the very heart of this cave. And they warned us, the guide warned us, he said, we're going to turn out the lights. Because I don't think he wanted any screaming going on. So he warned us that they were going to turn out the lights, and he did. And then he said, this is seven times darker than you'll ever see it. Well, that certainly doesn't take into account hell. But humanly speaking, he was saying, this is seven times darker than you will ever see it. And you could not see anything. Pitch, black, dark. You could not see your hand in front of your face. You could not see the shadow of your hand in front of your face. So let's say that this guide takes another group through. And he gets this group to the heart of this cave. And he tells them that he's going to turn out the light. And he does. He turns out the light. This group is a little bit different than the other group. Because not only is it pitch black dark now, but they're blind. They're blind, and the cave is pitch black dark. The guide turns on his flashlight, and he leaves. What's the hope of those in the cave? We were surrounded by darkness and blindness. Darkness and blindness is the work of the devil. I don't care. How deep the cave is tonight, I don't care how dark it is, I don't care how blind you are, there is a light, capital L, that can penetrate the darkest, deepest cave and flood it with the light of the gospel and open blind eyes so that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If, if we were charismatic, I'd have you say it with me. But My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. See, thy matters are good and right. The case is locked up. There is no room for questions or debate. In this matter, justice is on your side. You poor thing, you have everything you need for this case except the judge. Because there's no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Oh, that I were judge of the land. There's another important issue that I want to bring out in this. Just what we read there, 
but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. This subtly pits Absalom against David. Absalom is not just out to steal the people's affection. He is also sowing discord among the brethren. As though the offense of the one was not enough, Absalom is now sowing seeds of discord. They are seeds of strife, seeds of contention, and they will bring much offense to the kingdom. Without speaking directly against David, he, ins he insinuates a problem and a lack in the kingdom that if he were judge, he would correct. He tells the people that there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. The footnote in my Bible could also read like this. None will hear thee from the king downward. You don't, you don't have a voice. Without me, you do not have a chance, a voice. Now, without saying it outright, Absalom has cast doubt, suspicion, and contempt upon the present administration. There is no man under the king to hear thee. Now, I believe that there, that this was uh, still another lie from Absalom, what he's saying here. And he has no trouble lying, but his, abs, I'm sorry, his accusation is ungrounded. Absalom is offering no proof or evidence of what he is speaking. However, it could be that Absalom's criticism of David's rule and administration highlights a problem and a weakness in the kingdom. It seems that there is enough truth in his criticism to warrant an ear. That is not to say that his criticism is valid. But it is to say this, that even if the criticism is false, 90% false, if 10% be true, we, we must still deal with the 10%. We can't afford to not deal with criticism even if it's 1%. The point is that Absalom found a weakness and exploited it. He held a magnifying glass in front of these men. Do you see this? See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed the king to hear thee. If men were to really examine Absalom's words and criticism, they would see it for what it was, and they would judge and discern Absalom's character in the light of that. But Absalom takes aim to capitalize on a weakness and a flaw in the kingdom. The weakness could be real, or it could be pretended. An outright lie. Yet the pursuing result is the same. It brings offense and division. And Absalom is the good guy trying to resolve a problem that he magnified in the kingdom. I don't believe that Absalom created a weakness in the kingdom I believe he exploited and took advantage of it. See, thy matters are good and right. The case is locked up. There are no questions about this. Justice is on your side. Moving to verse 4, 
2 Samuel 15, 4. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man that hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. Absalom is still building his campaign promise on a weakness, real or apparent, in the kingdom. When Esther and I lived in Indiana, where it was much colder than it is here, uh, we had a wood stove, and sometimes we'd get wood that I had to uh, cut and split. Found out how much I enjoyed that. I got a mall and began going to work at it. Found out that it was an art and a science. Oh, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Some of the logs were smaller in diameter, and it's possible that if you hit it just right, you might split it with one uh, blow. But others were a little bit more cantankerous, and they may take several hits. But the idea on the tougher ones was this. If you could find a crack in the wood that was already there, you would hit it at that point. And then you would go after that over and over and over again. Whatever it took. You wouldn't turn the wood and hit it at different places and different angles. No, you stayed in that, in that groove, in that wedge. And eventually, you split the log wide open. Absalom. Who is your Absalom? He is driving a wedge right down the heart of Israel until the kingdom is split wide open. He's on a mission. We see that Absalom's speech is full of promise, but there is no true justice or judgment in his words or his promises. And Absalom is not just promising something that he does not intend to keep, he would not be able to keep that. He can't. It would be impossible to do what he is saying he will do. Verse 5, 2 Samuel 15, 5. And, so, and it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. Now, certainly, if this had been genuine, there might have been some profit to it. But this is really... Self-worship. The focus is not on the person who is doing the obeisance and esteeming them. It's still on Absalom. Absalom is the focus of this apparent act of humility. As we have seen, Absalom is all about appearances. And on the surface, this looks like a good thing. It seems to have a very personal, innocent, and charming nature to it. But it's a vain show. Is this role reversal a positive thing? Or is it actually destructive? The Bible says give honor to whom honor is due. We teach our children at a young age to be respectful of others. And we teach them how to be respectful of others. There are words and titles that we often use to give respect and honor to those who are in authority or who have certain positions in the church or society. 
This is not because one person is inherently better than his neighbor, but because of their role, station, and authority that God has invested them with in society. Even in a family, we don't teach our children to call us by our first name. We teach them, and they call us father, dad. There are titles to be used, and sometimes when we don't use them, it can be disrespectful. I had to go to court not too long ago over a traffic accident, and I didn't hear anyone in the courtroom calling the judge by his first name. I didn't hear anybody in the court say, yo, judge, over here. I didn't hear that. Wake up call. Okay, so all, what I heard was your honor over and over again. Your honor. Your honor. Now, what would the atmosphere of that courtroom be like if everyone relaxed titles and talked to each other casually, informally, no titles? What would that courtroom degenerate to? We already know there would be no authority there. There would be disorder, confusion in that courtroom. The whole nature of the courtroom would be changed because of how men are addressed and how the court order procedure goes. What Absalom does here has a show of personal care and, and, and a loving touch. And, and some of that isn't not it's not necessarily wrong, part of that. But where's the end of it? Where does that show of humility end? Would it not eventually break down society? Would it not eventually dishonor rather than giving honor to whom honor is due? This is actually a dis despising of the roles in society, whether it's in family, government, or church. This false obeisance is only good until Absalom is in office. Once he's, in, once he's king, that, that's going to change. He's going to demand respect, honor, and maybe even worship. 2 Samuel 15, 6. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the heart, the hearts of the men of Israel. When we read this verse, we should have a proper and healthy respect for the enemies of Christ and his church. This verse should not be taken lightly or casually. This verse has eternally internal consequences. One of the things that is most fearful about this verse, I suppose, is that it has a very seductive nature to it. Absalom was drawing men to himself. He was wooing men away from David, away from Christ. To himself, The Apostle John takes off his boxing gloves in 1 John 2, 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them which seduce you. Proverbs 12, 26 says, The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduceth them. 
And there's a danger here. We ourselves are no match for this battle. Absalom is a seducer, and dealing with him means you must keep in mind the warning of God's word concerning the adulterous woman. Proverbs 5, 6 says, Lest thou shouldest ponder the way of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. You know, you're not going to argue with Absalom and win. You're just, you're not going to win. Absalom loves to argue. He loves to debate. And I'm not saying that we never talk to Absalom. I'm not saying that. But you're not going to pin him down. His ways are movable. Thou canst not know them. The weapons of our warfare must be through the might, the power of God unto the pulling down of strongholds. We need to be clothed with the word and the spirit. That's, that's both our offense and defense. Absalom is a dangerous person. We're almost done. Bear with me. Absalom is a dangerous person. He really is dangerous. He is spiritually dangerous. You will not be in affinity with him without a price tag. The stakes are high if you cast your lot with Absalom. Proverbs 17, let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. You know, it's more dangerous. It says it's more dangerous to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than to meet a fool in his folly. Neither one sounds desirable. But in dealing with Absalom, we must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You know, we need to pity Absalom. Not in a wrong way, but pity him and love him and speak the truth in love. Brethren, the tragedy of Absalom, as it is with any man, is that he was left to himself. Absalom was left to himself. He was left to his own sin, his own folly, and Absalom didn't have a Nathan to say unto him, Thou art the man. I know that this will have context here, but blessed is the man that has a Nathan. This is a great, a great reason for us to pray often, O oh Lord, don't leave us to ourselves. Don't leave us to our folly, our sin, our foolishness. Don't take your hand off, not even for a moment. And on this manner did Absalom to all of Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Before David became the uh, king of Israel, he took care of his father's sheep. He knew what it meant to sacrifice everything hazarding even his life for the care of those sheep. David was not a perfect shepherd, but he was a faithful shepherd in Israel. Absalom proved that he was a hireling. David won the hearts of Israel. Absalom must steal them. David won Israel's heart by serving God and serving Israel, and except for a season of sin, he could be entreated. And he looked not only on his own affairs, but also on the affairs of others. Absalom saw only to be served. David won the hearts of Israel because they saw in him a man after God's own heart. They saw in him a shepherd. They saw in him character. They saw in him the sweet psalmist of Israel. 
they saw in him a warrior, a captain, a leader, a king. The men who followed David, at least some of them, most of them maybe, followed him because they loved him. They, they loved that man. Some of them loved him so much that they were willing to hazard their lives to bring him some water. And when David, David numbered the people and he was ready to go out to battle with them in 2 Samuel 18, the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die, they will not care for us. But now thou art worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. Is not David a type of Christ? If these, if these men could love David as much as they did, how much more ought we to love Christ? Whatever David was to his people, Christ is more. If David was worth 10,000 of them, how much more is Christ worth to his church? Who better to win our hearts than the good and faithful shepherd? Who better to serve than the one who came to, to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many? Oh, sinner, Christ is more than David. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the sweet psalmist of every nation. Christ is altogether lovely. He is the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. What is Christ to our soul tonight? John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Amen. Amen. If you would stand for the benediction, please. Thank you, maybe, for bearing a little longer. First Thessalonians. <clears throat> and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.